Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. I actually think, as, as harsh as this passage may sound, I actually think there's a lot of good and beautiful news for us in this text that may sound, that may rub against the grain of what we want to hear. There's actually some good news here. So let's, let's dive right in, all right? Um, so in 2019, the Harvard Business Review published an article by Rafi Mohammed, and in this article, Rafi Mohammed writes about what he calls bait and surcharge marketing. Bait and surcharge is when companies market this attractive price to gain consumer interest, but then when it comes time to purchase, they tack on all these mandatory fees and surcharges, right? This often increases the final cost of your, your purchase by like 30 to 50%. We've all experienced this. It has become the norm in so many industries right now. Have you booked a hotel? or an Airbnb recently. There are so many hidden fees, right? The advertised price may say $99 a night, but then you finally get to check out and realize it's closer to 150 because of the cleaning fee and the service fee, or if you're going to Las Vegas, the resort fee. It's crazy, they just add all these charges. The same is true for concerts or events, right? You see that ticket price, oh, $49, I'm gonna go to that show, and then you go to check out and there's a 50% premium added on for service fees or facility or ordering, whatever it is, right? Bait and surcharge marketing is this blatantly deceptive tactic that is meant to hide the real price of what is being sold. But here's the problem. It works. Consumers like you and me are more likely to purchase something when the advertised price is lower and there's fees added at checkout than if the total price was just showed up front. Um, StubHub learned this actually in 2014. They tried to set themselves apart from the other ticketing agencies or companies, and they, they decided to show all-in prices to their customers, but what they noticed is their revenues very quickly dropped. So they actually decided to test. They tried to do two different pricing strategies. Some customers would see the all-in total price up front, while other customers trying to buy the same ticket would see that lower price, and then they'd have those fees tacked on at checkout. And what can you say? The results were clear, as you might guess, that the lower price with the fees added later um, generated more and more sales. So they reverted back to make that bait and surcharge thing their kind of normal pricing strategy. Unfortunately, many well-intended churches and Christian leaders have applied bait and surcharge marketing tactics to Christianity. This expresses itself in things like the prosperity gospel, where the bait is health and wealth in Jesus, but the hidden fee is more and more requests for money and tithing so that the pastor can have that multi-million dollar home. This expresses itself in a Christianity that promises cultural and political power, but the hidden fee is allegiance to your political party, no matter the cost. This expresses itself in a sort of reductionistic gospel of, quote, accepting Jesus into your heart, but the hidden fee is sin management or behavioral modification or discipleship as an optional add-on down the road. It's tempting even for Christians to fall for this bait and surcharge marketing tactic. 
But the good news is that Jesus wants his disciples to know that there are no hidden fees when it comes to following him. Jesus wants to display all the costs as clearly as possible right up front, even if it won't generate as much revenue, so to speak. So with that in mind, I want to return to our passage for today, starting with verse 25. So in verse 25, very short, very simple, we see that large crowds were following Jesus. They were traveling with Jesus. So at this point in Jesus's public life, he was in what what we call his public ministry, and he was beginning to gain quite a large following. A lot of times we think, oh, Jesus just had the 12 disciples. But actually, Jesus, the 12 were Jesus's apostles. He actually had many disciples, men and women following him, traveling with him, right? So these large crowds started to gather to hear him preach, to see him work miracles, and the word was spreading about this amazing rabbi Jesus who could heal diseases, drive out demons, right? He could give sight to the blind, and he could even raise people from the dead. Not only that, but his words, the parables and teachings that he gave cut strongly against the grain of common ideas at the time. Jesus's teachings on anxiety, forgiveness, loving your enemies, prayer, hospitality, and so on were wildly compelling at the time. The more miracles that Jesus worked and the more profound teachings he gave, the larger the crowds began to grow following Jesus. So eventually this no-name kid from Nazareth becomes the most sought-after rabbi in town. This is, you would think this is really, really good news, but at this point in our text today, we see Jesus begins to do something pretty unexpected. Rather than use his celebrity to capitalize on the crowds or just continue preaching the same messages that made him famous, Jesus kind of begins to shift the tone of what he's saying. His teachings sort of shift suddenly. You start to hear him say strange things like this. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Or woe to you, Pharisees, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. Or what we heard the words of Jesus in our passage today. If anyone comes to me and does not hate their family, even more their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoa, this is pretty harsh, Jesus. Can you chill out? I was with you when you were talking about forgiveness and and, and even loving my enemies, but what's up with all this harsh language, this hate stuff? Doesn't Jesus know that he's going to lose his popularity if he starts talking like this? Why doesn't he just continue preaching the same messages and keep growing his audience? You see, Jesus shifts his tone here because he knows that the large crowds, are, they're not really hearing what he's saying. They hear what they want to hear, but they ignore the rest. And this is making them unfaithful and uncommitted followers. And as much as Jesus certainly wants everyone to follow him, he's not primarily interested in uncommitted crowds. He wants fully devoted disciples. Everyone is welcome to follow him, but he wants them to know exactly where he's headed. There are no hidden fees. All of this ends at the cross. It's as if Jesus is saying, come, witness the miracles and listen to my teachings. But no, this is what you're getting yourself into. You have to follow me everywhere that I go. Yes, to the mountaintops of joy and celebration and resurrection, but also to the lowest valleys of sorrow and pain and even crucifixion. 
And I think this, this kind of rubs against the grain for us because in our culture, we have a, a real lack in understanding of, of the word discipleship, what, what discipleship really is. We don't really use that word in our general culture. If you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard the word discipleship in relation to certain programs or events or ministries, right? Small groups, book clubs, events, and that's, that's great, but discipleship is really so much more than that. The closest word that we have to encapsulate the idea of discipleship is, is really the word apprenticeship. A disciple is really an apprentice of Jesus, and if you know what an apprentice is, you know that an apprentice is this hands-on student who is sort of devoting all their time and energy and life to learn from their teacher. Um, in his book, Being Disciples, which is, I highly recommend, it's a short, quick read uh, written by Rowan Williams, who is the former Archbishop of Canterbury, which is just a fancy word for saying the leader of the Church of England. And he, um, he has this book, Being Disciples, and it's all about what discipleship meant in the original, in the original context, right, over 2,000 years ago when these disciples were following Jesus. This is what he says. The essence of being a student was to hang on your teacher's every word, to follow in his or her steps, to sleep outside their door in order not to miss any pearls of wisdom falling from their lips, to watch how they conduct themselves at the table, how they conduct themselves in the street. To be the student of a teacher was to commit yourself to living in the same atmosphere and breathing the same air. There was nothing intermittent about it. That kind of commitment, breathing the same air, living in the same atmosphere, sleeping outside their door, that's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about when he's talking about discipleship. It's about giving your entire life to learn from the master teacher, not just showing up to class a few times a week, which is maybe what we think of when we hear students, or just showing up to church on Sunday, but reorienting your entire life around Jesus. That is why Jesus begins to address this crowd with this sort of language. He wants them to know what following him really means. He wants those who will leave the crowd, he wants them to to step away from, from the big crowd who just wants to listen, and he wants them to really become his disciples, but he wants them to know what they're getting themselves into. And that's why Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to count the cost. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to count the cost. So I want to look at the two examples that Jesus gives about what he's talking about when he says count the cost. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 28 here. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. We don't really build towers in the same way they would have then. So let me try to put this example into modern terms. Maybe if Jesus was here speaking to me or you today, he might say something like this. Suppose you want to move out of your rental apartment and buy a home in Chicago. Won't you start by checking Zillow or Redfin to get an idea for how much homes cost in your neighborhood? Won't you check your mortgage rates and compare the estimated monthly payment to see if it aligns with your budget? And won't you then realize that, well, maybe a one or two bedroom condo is more realistic than that historic bungalow you were hoping for? But seriously, 
Jesus is saying we need to count the cost before we make a big decision, whether we're talking about buying our first home or committing our lives to become his disciple. And the second illustration that Jesus uses is similar. Um, In verses 31 and 32, Jesus talks about a king who's about to go off to war. But before he sends his troops, right, to go to war, he's, he's definitely going to consider if they have what it takes to go to war against this other nation. He needs to count the cost because the cost could be quite serious, right? Not only will lives be lost, but this king could lose power and this nation could go through great turmoil and strife and hardship. Again, Jesus is just trying to make it abundantly clear that it's so important to really consider what's the outcome going to be of this decision before I make it. And while these crowds may like witnessing the miracles of Jesus and listening to some of what he has to say, if they really want to follow him, they have to count the cost. They have to count the cost. So what is the cost of following Jesus? What will it really cost to become his disciples? Well, when we look at our text, I think we see three big things that Jesus wants this crowd to consider. Three questions, if you will, that Jesus wants this crowd to meditate on before they follow him. Counting the cost means honestly asking three questions. Here they are. One, am I willing to love Jesus above all else? Two, am I willing to carry my cross to follow Christ? And three, am I willing to give up everything I have to be a disciple? Jesus wants the crowd to count the cost and answer honestly. And I think Jesus is asking us, you and me, the same three questions. Because if we don't actually count the cost of following Christ, we'll end up like that person who started to build a house that they couldn't afford to finish. We'll end up walking away when things inevitably get tough. We'll end up with a life that looks very little like the good and beautiful, peaceful, joyful, loving life that Jesus is inviting us into. So I want to just spend the rest of our time this morning looking at briefly looking at each of those three questions. And I want to see what what did Jesus mean when he asked the crowd that question and what might he mean when he asks us that question. So let's jump in. The first question that we have to ask ourselves is this, am I willing to love Jesus above all else? Let's reread verse 26, this harsh, harsh verse. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, earlier, I kind of prodded and and joked about how harsh this sounds. And there's a level of truth to the harshness. But we have to ask, is Jesus really telling his followers to hate their own family? Thankfully not. Jesus is using this sort of hyperbolic language to grab their attention, to to really show them, wow, like he's saying this, this harsh word, but really he's just trying to communicate how deeply the disciples must desire to follow him. The word hate here is not like we use the word hate. When we say, oh, I hate you, we mean like we despise that person or or we're disgusted by that person. But that's not what the word hate means in this context. The word hate here is just simply about loving someone or something less than something else, right? So what Jesus is actually saying is that his followers must love him even more than they love their own family, right? Right? 
all throughout the scripture, we're, we're um, told to love and honor our family. So Jesus isn't saying, don't love your family. He's saying, love me even more than how deeply you love your family. And the same is true when Jesus says to hate your own life. Again, Jesus is not saying you have to despise your life. No, he's saying, love me even more than you love your own life. And Jesus is wise to start with love, I think, not because he's this needy person or clingy and he needs a lot of affection or he needs a lot of love. Like, you can't follow me if, if you don't love me so much. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is, is wise to start with love because at the end of the day, he knows what we've only learned through modern, modern science, neuroscience, brain science has taught us. We are all driven by what we love. We end up spending time with what we love the most. We think and, and dwell and meditate on the things that we love. We prioritize and are motivated by what we love the most, whether we like it or not. To summarize the wise words of St. Clair of Assisi, we become what we love, and who we love shapes what we become. We become what we love, and who we love shapes what we become. That's why Jesus begins with love, not because he's needy or clingy, because he knows that we will ultimately serve and follow and desire what we love the most. If this love language doesn't resonate you, maybe with you, maybe another way to ask this question would be this. Am I willing, or sorry, like this, what am I holding on to? that is stopping me from following Jesus? What am I holding on to that is stopping me from following Jesus? The answer to that question will be different for all of us. We see examples all throughout the New Testament of people giving various excuses for why they won't follow Christ. I was actually just chatting with one of our congregants this morning saying like, oh, I feel like I have this harsh word about following Jesus this morning. Um, and he goes, yeah, there, isn't there that one line where that person didn't want to follow Jesus? And it was like a very common, simple request. He just said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father, right? Or someone else, when Jesus asked them to follow him, said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Or some people just walk away from the invitation to follow Jesus, and they know they don't really have any excuse at all. You may have heard this story about, it's commonly called the rich young ruler, and this rich man approaches Jesus to ask him how he can get eternal life. And Jesus just simply responds, Keep the Ten Commandments, and you'll have eternal life. But the rich man replies, I've kept them all, and what do I still lack? So Jesus answers him, okay, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the rich man heard this, he gives no excuse, he says nothing, he just walks away sad because he had great wealth. And I think a lot of people kind of look at this rich man and, and kind of like, wow, I can't believe you just walked away from Jesus. But we gotta give him some credit because he honestly counted the cost. He actually, in that moment, reflected and considered what it would really mean for him to follow Jesus, to sell everything that he had to give to the poor. We have to give him some credit because when he considered the cost, he decided that it was too high for him. So he walks away with great sadness but at least he was honest. 
we too must answer this question with complete honesty. Not, not with a sort of a, a backhanded lie, but with what we really think and feel and believe. And the question is, am I truly willing to love Jesus above all else? Above my money and my possessions, above my career, above my family and friends, above my political affiliations, above my reputation, above it all. Not because these things are bad or unchristian or evil. We can still love these things, care about these things, put energy and time into them. But ultimately, discipleship to Jesus demands loving him above everything else. So that's the first question. The second question that Jesus wants to consider as we count the cost is similar. It's this. Am I willing to carry the cross to follow Christ? Verse 27 is so simple and straightforward. Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So I hear Jesus say these things, right? Hate your own family and your own life. Carry the cross, this Roman tool for execution and, and killing. I can just imagine the crowds getting smaller and smaller, kind of, okay, okay, no miracles today, Jesus. I'll come back tomorrow and, and check in and see what you got for us. Um, but Jesus is just continuing to illustrate what it really means to follow him. To really be a disciple of Jesus means to follow him in the miraculous, joyful, celebratory times and in the painful, difficult, even deadly times. And Jesus knows where this is all going to end in a short amount of time. He will be arrested and brutally crucified at the hands of the Roman Empire. So we have to, as we read this, we have to understand that Jesus is speaking kind of in a literal sense to this crowd. Like he's literally saying, following me means like walking behind me everywhere that I go, even all the way to the cross. There's a literal sense of, of carrying your cross and following Jesus. But Jesus at the same time is speaking in a metaphorical sense. There's other places in scripture where Jesus talks about picking up your cross daily. He didn't mean that literally go pick up your cross in, in that moment. But what he means is that you would, you would sort of daily pick up your metaphorical cross. And what that means is waking up every morning and ask yourselves, am I willing to live with the cross and everything that this cross represents at the center of my life? What does the cross represent? Well, a cross-shaped life is a life of self-sacrifice. A cross-shaped life is a life of suffering, love. A cross-shaped life is a life of willingness to let go of everything, even life itself. And we are invited to orient our lives around the cross. It's why we have it, this ginormous one. Sometimes I forget it's there, but it's really the center of, of the Christian life is a, is a cruciform, a cross-shaped life. And when we count the cost, we see that the cross will cost everything. But here's the good news. Thankfully, on the other side of the cross, why is it empty? Why, don't, why is there nothing on that cross? Because the other side of the cross is the resurrection. In losing our lives, in giving up our lives, we actually find true life. And that's the paradox of follow, following Jesus. He's offering eternal, abundant, kingdom living, living even now, if only we, we pick up our cross and follow him. That's the paradox that through death, we find life. So 
Question one, am I willing to love Jesus above everything? Question two, am I willing to carry the cross to follow Christ? And that leads us to question three, am I willing to give up everything I have to be a disciple? Jesus gave those examples earlier about the builder um, counting the cost and the king counting the cost before going to war. And then to close it all up, wrap it all up, Jesus gives this final um, summary verse. He says this, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. It's as if Jesus is taking everything he just said and putting it into one sentence, just encapsulating the whole idea. If the first two examples weren't clear enough, Jesus wants us to know with abundant clarity that following Jesus demands everything. Now, I think when when people hear this verse or they're trying to explain this verse, they tend to do one one thing or the other, one of two things. The first thing people, I think, tend to do is on this side of the extreme, and that is they take this verse kind of at face value and think that literally only people who give everything they have can actually be true disciples of Jesus. No money, no car, no house, everything given to to Jesus. On the other side of the extreme, though, people tend to over-spiritualize this verse to the point that it really has nothing to do with our actual stuff. And so it's only about giving up in in a sort of a theoretical sense. Now, both of these extremes contain a little bit of truth. They both have some truth to them, but here's what Jesus is really getting at. It's not just an over-spiritualized theory, and it's also not a literal let go of everything you can't own anything. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a willingness, a true willingness in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit to give up everything in order to follow him. A willingness to surrender all, a willingness to let go of everything that we hold most dearly, whether it's our finances or our plans for our life, the people we love, our possessions, whatever it may be. That's what it means to really count the cost. Because following Jesus could cost me my career. It could cost me relationships with family and friends. It could cost me a sense of financial stability. It could even cost me my life. And the very fact that it could cost me all of that is exactly why Jesus demands us to be willing to count the cost. Not because it will necessarily cost me that. None of those things are bad. It's not wrong to have a career or money or friends. These are good and beautiful things. But Jesus is saying, do you have a willingness to let go of them, if need be, for the sake of following me? And even more than that, just beyond physical stuff, there's also a sense in which discipleship does demand everything because it requires a a reorientation of our entire lives. Every single aspect of our lives needs to orient around the path, the way that Jesus is leading. Kind of like that quote I read earlier from Rowan Williams, everything we do begins to hang on the words of Jesus. We begin to sleep outside of his door because we can't wait to, to just follow him him wherever he's going. We want to spend all of our time with him and do what he would do if he were us. That's the kind of discipleship that Jesus is inviting us into. And I think 
I don't know about you, but a lot of my friends right now are sort of wrestling through if they're still Christians. Um, if you want to use the word, they're sort of deconstructing their faith. And I think the reason that so many people are, are sort of deconstructing their faith is actually, at least in my experience growing up, the church that I grew up in kind of taught this bait and surcharge tactic to, to market the Christianity that they were inviting some people into, right? I don't know about you, but I was told that disciples is sort of an optional add-on to what it really means to follow Jesus. The first thing is this, this easy thing to just say, say a prayer or just, just kind of begin to go to church, but, but then it was only down the line that I was told that, well, actually what it means is, is this is what you have to do and, and this is how you have to live, right? And as well-intended as it may be, there were hidden messages, hidden fees of sin management or, or behavioral modification that had very little to do with my actual discipleship to Jesus. And this overly reductionistic version of being a Christian but not a disciple, it should be deconstructed. It should be taken apart and kind of wrestled with and, and refigured and rethought to see what does it look like to put this back together and actually be a disciple and, and give my entire life. Because for Jesus, there's no such thing as being a Christian but not a disciple. They're, they're one and the same. In fact, and I just learned this um, this week, but the word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament. The word Christian, only about three times. And every time it's used to describe disciples. Um, to quote Dallas Willard, I love this, just such simple, straightforward. The New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. And what I love about Jesus' invitation to, to follow him, to become a disciple, is that it's open to everyone, no matter what. You don't have to have all your theological ducks in a row before being a disciple. You don't have to have your life figured out. You don't have to get all cleaned up and get your sin under control before becoming a disciple. Absolutely not. Just last week, Melissa taught on um, this parable of the great banquet, this great feast in which Jesus is beckoning everyone to come, especially the, the most marginalized, the sort of least of these, to come and, and feast at his table. And next week, we'll hear of the prodigal son, right? Where, where the father sort of represents God welcoming everyone back to his family, to the community. So there's nothing exclusive about the invitation to come and follow Christ. Jesus says it himself, if anyone, anyone wants to be my disciple, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So while Jesus is, is inviting us in such a way to, to count the cost of what it looks like to really give our lives to him, he's actually saying, here's how you can find true life. While the way of Jesus may be leading to the cross, it ultimately brings us to resurrection glory. While discipleship may require a willingness to surrender all, it's actually where we find the fullness of hope, joy, peace, goodness, and beauty. So to summarize, Jesus is asking his would-be disciples some difficult questions. He desperately wants this uncommitted crowd to become fully devoted disciples. And so he asks them to honestly consider three questions, and he asks us to consider them as well. 
Jesus with, I just imagine him with such kindness and grace, not, not harshness, not severity, not no need to coerce, but just with kindness and grace asking us, are you willing to love me above all else? Are you willing to carry your cross and follow me? Are you willing to give up everything you have to be my disciple? And these questions, just to be clear, are not sort of a one and done sort of question. We don't just answer them once and then move on with our lives. These are questions that we can reflect on every single day. And no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey today, whether you decided to follow Jesus as a child and now you're kind of wondering, how does this all work with my my modern life as an adult in Chicago? Or maybe you're questioning Christianity and trying to decide if this whole Jesus Jesus thing is for you. Or maybe you are all in really seeking to center your life around apprenticeship to Jesus. No matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, Jesus is inviting you, Jesus is inviting me to really count the cost of following him, to really answer these questions every day with honesty, knowing And here's the the beauty. God knows us and loves us and sees us no matter how we answer them. Even in my own life, some days I feel like I have different answers and the next day a different answer. And that's totally okay. So I wonder just as we begin to close, this is a little different than how we normally end our, our teaching time, but I wonder if we just make a little bit of space now in our own hearts and in our own minds for just a moment or two of silence to sort of meditate and make space for, for Jesus to, to help us see how are we answering these questions right now. Maybe we just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to really, to really convict us, to really speak to us wherever we are. So I wanna just slow down for a moment, get into a pause posture of prayer and just be reminded as you begin um, sort of praying and seeking God, just be reminded that God is closer than the air we breathe. No matter where you find yourself this morning, Jesus isn't coercing us to follow him. He's just inviting us with kindness and grace to, to be with him, to be near him because we love him. So, um, Let's leave a few moments of silence now to just listen to what God's spirit may be speaking as we try to answer and consider these questions. I'll leave a few minutes of silence and then I'll close us in prayer. Holy Spirit, guide us as we pray. Jesus, I'm just reminded of your words where you say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Lord, the invitation to follow you, even though it may cost us our lives, in doing so, we can find true life. Your yoke is easy. 
your burden is light. We were made to walk alongside of you to find the fullness of joy, the fullness of peace, the fullness of hope as we love and serve our neighbors, as we, as we encounter you in everyone that we meet, as, as we kind of just sleep outside of your door, so to speak, waking up ready to follow you wherever you're going to lead us, sometimes to those joyful moments of resurrection, of beauty, of, of healing, of curing diseases, and sometimes to the difficult moments, Lord, where it, where it doesn't even feel like you're there. But Lord Jesus, we come before you honestly, wherever we are this morning, um, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to empower us. We can't do this on our own. We can't do this in our own strength. We can't do this by our own power. We must be filled with you, the very breath of life, um, so that we can be empowered to follow Jesus. Uh, We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.